We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Well, thank you, Pastor Josh. Um, Good morning, Amaze. It's good to be with you this morning. It's been a real privilege to be here um, as a covenant member for the past three years with y'all and and I am in my second year of uh, the pastoral residency here, and that's been just a, a true blessing as well. So I, I hope today's um, message in John chapter 3 will be um, as encouraging to you as it has been for me. And, and even just thinking about um, sending the, the Swadleys out here, I know that's a bittersweet thing for us. Um, but it's I hope as we move through this passage this morning that even we can just feel the um, the weight of the new birth that Jesus is talking about here, and just may even re- reinforce what we are hoping for from the people of, of South Asia who have yet to place their faith in Christ. And so, um, yeah, I just hope that that is um, something that is um, just is, comes with weight this morning, but a, a good weight. So we're going to be jumping into John chapter 3. We just read that. We're going to be in the first 15 verses of John chapter 3. And so I'm going to kind of give us just a, hopefully a little context of what's going on here, because as most of you know, we usually go through whole books of the Bible here in Emmaus, so you usually have a little bit of context of what to work with when you arrive at chapters 3, 4, 5, 6 of a book, Um, but that's not quite the case with the residency series here. So this is a conversation that we'll enter into between, um, you might have picked up, Jesus and a man by the name of Nicodemus. And so um, this is this, we step into this conversation in Jerusalem on, a, on a specifically a dark night in Jerusalem, uh, probably much darker th- at the end of this than Nicodemus ever could have imagined. It's, about, um, it's the week before the Passover, and it's probably about two years before Jesus would become the Passover for his people. Jesus is still relatively new on the scene. You might remember that he's revealed himself at his baptism He's called his first disciples, and he's changed water into wine. So he's performed a number of different miracles in town. And so um, his presence, though, at the feast had actually caused, in Jerusalem, actually caused quite a stir. He'd made his way on a journey um, to Jerusalem, um, like all good Jews did, um, for the feast. And what had actually caused quite a stir in town was these miracles that we're talking about here. Um, one of them, like I said, the changing of water into wine. And he not only caught the attention of the crowds or the people, but of the religious leaders as well. And so I think it's important for us to actually read the last three verses of John chapter 2. And what John tells us is he's going to kind of give us some insight into the way people are now believing in Jesus or the way that they are perceiving him. And so he says this in verses 23 through 25. He says, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs or the miracles that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he knew what was in man. And so what we must be aware of here is what John is saying is that there is a way of believing in Jesus that he does not acknowledge that he does not entrust himself to those who do. He's saying it's not genuine. But what we're going to see in this passage right away here, what Jesus is going to tell us, though, in John chapter 3, is that there is a way of believing in him that he does acknowledge, that he does entrust himself to those who do, 
as real children of God with access into the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And so as we go through this conversation, don't miss that. That is honestly the the major point of what's happening here. I have three points that I I think will kind of help flesh that out for us, but this, 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 uh, this genuine belief it all, is all hinged around this new birth that Jesus is going to be talking to Nicodemus about. But for the time being, we find, um, we, we step into this, this chapter, into this conversation, finding that the religious leaders are very unsettled with Jesus' presence at the feast. And one of those in particular is a man by the name of Nicodemus. And he just cannot shake the gnawing, nagging question of who Jesus is. And so John is going to introduce us to Nicodemus in verse 1 here, if you want to follow along with me. He says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. And so we find that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. This means he's a ruler and a teacher of the Jews. So, so Nicodemus probably would have had a lot of social and political power amongst the Israelite people. He probably also was an older man in age, given what the rest of chapter 3 says about him. And he would have been very strict about keeping the Old Testament laws or the Old Testament commandments. The majority of his day would have been spent trying to to keep these laws. And given what the, um, um, it's also very helpful for us to know that he would have had the vast majority of his Old Testament memorized. He definitely knew his Old Testament Bible. In verse 2, it also says that he came to Jesus at night. And so this is, there's a number of different ways to look at this. It, we're not quite sure what this totally means, but it could mean that he was benefiting from the cloak of darkness so as to not to be associated with Jesus, this miracle wonder worker. Or maybe, maybe it, John is alluding to the dark spiritual condition that he presently finds his own soul in, which I'm a little bit more led to believe given how John uses light and darkness throughout his entire gospel. Um, or maybe it's just a historical detail, but either way, this teacher of Israel has questions, very unsettling questions, and throughout this conversation, we can almost feel the friction between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus desires to know eternal and spiritual things, yet it soon becomes very obvious that he does not have the capacity to sort out these types of questions. Jesus, on the other hand, will redirect every one of Israel's teachers' questions to the spiritual realm. And so, brothers and sisters, I urge you to lean in and listen to this conversation because it's not just for a first century Jewish teacher. It has massive eternal implications and it's intended for you and I as well. And so, we're going we're gonna to hear Nicodemus's first question and that comes in que- um, verse number two here. And it will bring us to our first point this morning. And that is that the new birth is necessary. The new birth is necessary. So Nicodemus brings his question to Jesus. He says this in verse 2. Rabbi, or teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So on the surface level, it almost sounds like Nicodemus is making a blanket statement about who Jesus is. But underneath it all, like I said, are questions. And the And the answers he's going to get are going to shake him to the very core. What he's actually saying here is, Jesus, something is going on in this town, and I don't understand it. I've seen the things that you've been doing, things that almost seem divine. I've heard the rumblings and the rumors about you. So what he's saying is, Jesus, who are you? Are you a teacher? 
Are you a prophet? Are you a rabbi? Could you even be the long-awaited Messiah that my people have waited so long to see? I can only imagine the things that are running through his head at this moment. For his entire life, he had clung to the promise that a king in the line of David would one day drive out the Gentiles, that he'd restore the kingdom, that he would renew the covenant and faithfulness with Israel. He definitely sees in Jesus' work a divine activity, something only someone sent from God can do. And what he's, what he's wanting here is answers to divine things, heavenly things, things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And so Jesus could have answered him by saying, yeah, good job, Nicodemus. I'm from God, and I wish every good Jew like yourself, having seen my miracles, would know the truth about me. But that's actually not what he says. He, he responds to Nicodemus in verse 3. He says to him, Truly, truly, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, Nicodemus had come to this conversation with his own criteria to assess who Jesus is, and Jesus cuts him off directly, revealing to Nicodemus that in his present spiritual state, he does not have the ability to sort out these kinds of questions. He thinks he sees something of who Jesus is and his miracles, but Jesus reveals to them that no one can know the saving reign of God let alone the significance of his miracles, nor can he know the details of the kingdom of God unless he is born again, or better understood, born from above. Every time I come to this point in this conversation here, I can't help but think of one of the first patients I had coming through the ER. I've, I've been working as an ER nurse for the past seven or eight years, and I remember getting the ambulance call um, about one of the first traumas that came, through the, came into the ER for me as a, as a new nurse, and um, it was a guy that had been in a motor vehicle crash, and they, so they, the ambulance comes in, they wheel him into the trauma bay there, and we're trying to hold bleeding against his, he, he had really bad uh, trauma to his lower leg, and this guy was an older farmer, and um, how would I describe this guy? Just kind of a good old boy way about him, if, if that makes sense, and um, so we're holding bleeding, I'm, I'm trying to feel for pulses in, in the bottom of his feet there, ask him if he can wiggle his toes, just making sure that he has blood flow still running to his leg, and I say, sir, can you, feel, can you have any sensation going on down here? And he, he says to me, ah, son, don't worry about the leg. I'm, I'm not too worried about it. But this, this rash here on my back, like, it's been bothering me for years. It's just been nagging at me. Like, could you look at that? And uh, I said to him, yeah, sir, we'll, we'll get to that eventually here. But um, your leg here, like, I'm, I'm really, it's in bad shape. Like, can you feel anything going on here? And he says, seriously, I'm not worried about the leg. But this thing, I can't sleep with that at night. Can you look, can you look at it? <laughs> and I'm just thinking, I hope this guy walks out of here on two legs and he's worried about a rash. <laughs> and so I think at this point in this conversation, Jesus is dealing, he has the same thing, a similar uh, mindset of what's going on with Nicodemus here. Nicodemus wants to know things about who Jesus is and things about details about the kingdom of God, but Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you have a bigger problem going on here. You're missing it. Had he forgotten what the Old Testament scriptures had said about the core of mankind, what's at the nature of mankind? Had he forgot what the author of Genesis said that, about the heart of man, that every inclination is evil continually? Or what about it, the prophet Jeremiah, what he had said about the heart, that the heart is deceitful above all things and it is desperately sick? What about his beloved King David? Remember what he said after his sinfulness in the 51st Psalm? I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the moment my mother conceived me. 
Brothers and sisters, it's as if the very fountains of our life are polluted as well as the streams that are pouring forth from them. We are bent towards evil and depraved things. Nicodemus had forgot this. He's utterly dependent upon God. He needs a radical spiritual transformation, something from above to happen to him, not not from within, but from outside of his own ability. He needs a regeneration of new life comparable to that of a physical birth happening. And Nicodemus responds, he's baffled, but he responds to this in verse four. He says, Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter in second time into his mother's womb and be born? What he's arguing is, Jesus, this isn't possible. Babies don't go back into their mother's womb to be born, let alone can an old man like me do such a thing. In his natural state, Nicodemus could only place Jesus in natural categories and natural terms through his natural lens. For his entire life, Nicodemus had believed that entrance into the kingdom of God was associated with obedience to God's commands, faithfulness to God's covenant, devotion to God's will, and this is the big one, inclusion amongst God's people, the people of Israel. They were all externally attainable to him. Do, do, do. Self-improvement, self-improvement, self-improvement. But he did not have a category for the new birth. What Nicodemus needs and what you and I need is not new religion, but we need new life. The point of referring to new birth is that new birth brings new life into the world. We have so many babies. We're, we're so blessed with so many babies here today. We can almost visualize it. see it. We can hear it sometimes, too. <laughs> In one sense, Nicodemus is alive, right? Just like you and I are alive. He's thinking, acting, feeling. He's got blood rushing through his veins. He's human. But evidently, Jesus thinks he's dead. There is no spiritual life in Nicodemus. Spiritually, he is unborn. He needs new life, not more religious activities or more religious zeal. He's got plenty of that going on for him. And so in verse five, Jesus will expand on this new birth a little more here. He'll say this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. So in essence, this new birth is not going to come about by man's own creating it or the flesh, right? It's going to come about by the Holy Spirit granting this new life. And it's going to have a cleansing nature to it like that of water. And there's a lot of varying interpretations for these two verses that we just read. One of them being um, uh, baptism, which is probably incorrect given um, what the Old Testament prophets and, and scriptures say about um, this new, this, the new life that's going to be coming. But um, Nicodemus probably should have known this as well, too. Uh, Jesus seems to think he, he, he should have in verse 7. He says, Do not marvel that I said you must be born, of, born again. I think the NIV helps us a little bit better, saying that you should not be surprised at me saying that you must be born again. See, Jesus assumed that, he, that Nicodemus should have known that some Sort of, sort of significant heart work was going to happen to God's people one day. Um, he, he thought he should have known this because this was the type of cleansing or renewing heart work that the prophet Ezekiel had pro- pro- prophesied and promised um, to God's people nearly 500 years prior to Jesus had uh, come upon the scene. He says this in chapter 36, of tw- uh, verses 25 through 27 of the book, in the book of Ezekiel. Speaking on behalf of God, he says this, In verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. 
And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be, okay, and be careful to obey my rules. You see, this prophecy, if you remember, was given to an unclean and unfaithful Israel who had found themselves in Babylonian exile. Nicodemus should have associated himself with these people. Jesus seems to think that, Jesus is trying to tell uh, Nicodemus that like what Ezekiel is prophesying about here, that he, God is, he's pointing his people towards this new birth. This, it's, he's saying your heart must be cleansed like that of water rushing over it. And the Holy Spirit must create within you a new nature, one that now has spiritual life-giving blood pumping through it. He's saying, Nicodemus, then and only then will you possess the ability to see me in a saving way, let alone hunger to do God's will. And furthermore, I believe it's no accident that you might remember in chapter 37, Ezekiel, that the valley, the account of the valley of dry bones where Ezekiel preaches and the spirit brings life to dead, dry bones. Nicodemus had apparently not thought of his Old Testament passages this way. If he was like most other Pharisees, he was probably too overconfident in, in, the, in his own obedience to think he needed much, much repentance, let alone his whole life transformed and his, and his heart cleansed. And the same is true for you, you and I today, brothers and sisters. Unless we are born again, similar to the, like that of a new baby being brought forth into the world, with new hearts that have been regenerated and cleansed by the Holy Spirit, we will not possess the ability to see the kingdom of God nor enter into it because the glorious worth of Christ will be clouded from our eyes. It'll be veiled to us. We will not be able to see it. Until then, like Nicodemus, there will only be the teeth-gritting work of striving for obedience. There will be no grace. There will be no love. There will be no faith. Only exhausting work. Remember, do, do, do. Self, self-improvement, self-improvement, self-improvement. That's what Nicodemus had grown up with. The Holy Spirit must, in essence, flip on the light switch so that we can see Jesus for all his glorious worth. It's almost like, you remember when you saw the Big Dipper for the first time? Remember when somebody pointed it out to you? You looked up into the night sky, into the constellations, and you're like, oh yeah, okay, that actually kind of does look like a big spoon. Or Orion's bell, you're like, okay, I could actually see a hunter there. But prior to that, you looked up into the night sky and you saw stars, beautiful stars. I love looking at the stars. Some were bright, others were brighter, but they had no sequence. They had no shape to them, just stars. But once somebody revealed it to you, you could never unsee it again. You can never go back to where you came from. You will always see it again. But it had to be revealed to you, Right? So I know illustrations usually fall very short compared to the massive things that we're talking about here. But I hope you get my point. Like Nicodemus, you must be born again. Until then, you won't be able to see Jesus nor the kingdom of God, let alone enter into it because Jesus will not be revealed to you. He will not be revealed to you rightly. God, through his Holy Spirit, must act upon you to overcome your inability to see his son as Lord and Savior. And so if this new birth is necessary, and if the Holy Spirit is the one that's bringing this new life through the, the new birth, then Jesus is now is going to comment on the agenda or the will of this Holy Spirit. And that brings us to our second point, is that the will of the Spirit 
is sovereign. The will of the Spirit is sovereign. He says in verse 8 here, The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So throughout scriptures, from creation to the valley of dead, dry bones that we just read about, or even to the spiritual new birth that we're talking about today, it is the Holy Spirit who is the one we see creating new life throughout the scriptures. And if he is the one creating new life, and if he's the one that brings this spiritual new birth life through the new birth, then whom is he giving it to? How does he move? What is his agenda? And how do I ensure that he comes upon me? Jesus answers this by comparing the spirit with the wind, or more precisely, the effects of the spirit with the effects of the wind. Think about how we experience the wind in everyday life. We feel its presence against our skin, right? We see its force upon a swaying tree, especially here in the Midwest. We even smell its aromas that it brings past our nostrils. But I can't say to you, in about five minutes, it's going to be right over there. And in about ten minutes, it's going to be over there. And our meteorologists definitely can't do that either. <laughs> but we see its effects, right? Like the Spirit, Jesus is comparing it to the wind. The point is that it can either be controlled nor understood, but we will eventually see its effects in those who have been genuinely been granted new life, new birth, Hatred for sin, desire for holiness, love for one's neighbor, fruits of the Spirit, these will become evident eventually. But it's not our place to try to determine the will of the wind or the will of the Spirit. We, we, have, we have no control of that. But its evidences will be, become evident in time. And I know this can be a difficult truth to kind of wrestle with because I know there are many mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, co-workers and friends who have yet to see Jesus with eyes of faith. And they're in my life too. And I feel the pain of watching them walk through life without the assurance, saving assurance that's found in Christ. And so, church, if this new birth is necessary to see Jesus rightly, and if his spirit is, is necessary for us to, to experience this new birth, then may that drive us to our knees in prayer Parents, as you tuck your kids in bed every night, do you pray for them? Do you beg that one day the Holy Spirit would give them eyes of faith to, to see Jesus for, for all of who he is? When you're driving to work every day, do you pray for your coworker? Do you ask that the Lord would maybe today give them new birth so that they could see Jesus rightly through your gospel witness? Or perhaps you've shared the gospel numerous times with your unbelieving spouse with very little fruit to show from it. But if you first ask that the Lord give them new birth to see Jesus rightly, the wind blows wherever it wishes, and so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The Lord is causing new birth. He has caused new birth. He, he continues to cause new birth, and he will continue to. So may we, church, trust in his sovereign will as he, as he goes about that. Verses 9 through 13, Nicodemus responds to this, and he's, he's baffled, you can tell. He says this to Jesus. How can these things be? And Jesus answers him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? In other words, Jesus is saying, everything that I'm telling you, Nicodemus, is built on the foundation of the Old Testament scriptures, the very thing you, teacher of Israel, are supposed to be an expert in. 
He says to him in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. You remember what Nicodemus' original question was? Remember, it was a desire to know who Jesus is and perhaps even the glories of living in the kingdom of God. He definitely wanted to know the details of it. But if he's unable to see Jesus rightly, that is the Messiah come down from heaven, that is God, then what is the point of going on to explain more of the details of the kingdom of God if he can't see Jesus rightly? And so, G- and so Nicodemus is reeling now. You can, you can hear that in his answers. And up to this point, Jesus has revealed to him that seeing and entering the kingdom of God requires a new birth, a spiritual birth from above, outside of his own ability, with a new heart that's been transformed and renewed by the work of the Spirit, a work that is like the blowing of the wind, solely upon the determination of God's will. And from his astonishment, you, you can hear it in his answers, You can almost hear the question that's coming. Well, if I have no control over it, if I have no control of the spirit that brings new birth, then what do I do? And if that is his question, it's a good one. And it's one that we should have as well too. What do I do? And it brings us to our third point today. It's Jesus' response to him. He tells him to look up to the Son of Man. Look up to the Son of Man. Jesus responds to him in verses 14 and 15. He says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so what Jesus is saying here about this serpent being lifted up in the wilderness, or this snake being lifted up in the wilderness, he's going back to an Old Testament scripture, or an Old Testament story of of the people of Israel that Nicodemus should have been familiar with. It happens in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. And if you remember, in the Old Testament, God has taken a people, the people called Israel, the Jewish people, and he's, he's uh, called them to be a people for his very self to bring glory to himself. And so during the portion of, their old, of the Old Testament, they find themselves in 400 years of, of slavery in Egypt. And so, at one point, after, at the end of those four years, God brings them up out of that slavery, and he says, I'm going to take you to this promised land, a land called Canaan, a land just for yourself that will be a good land for you. But from the exodus that we call them coming out of slavery to, this, to the arriving of this promised land, he takes them 40 years in the desert. And during those 40 years, he tells them, he commands them, trust me, I will provide for you, and I will lead you. And if you're you're familiar all with their time in the wilderness, you'll know that they pretty much most of the time do just the opposite. And this particular situation is no different. This particular situation, they grumble about lack of food and water. And so because of their unbelief, the Lord, in judgment, sends snakes, poisonous snakes into their camp. Many begin to be bit and many begin to die. And so they cry out to their their leader, Moses, and they say, go to the Lord before us. Plead to him that he would save us. And so Moses does this. And so this is what the Lord tells Moses to do. He says, I want you to make a bronze snake, and I want you to lift it high upon a pole in the, in the camp of the Israelites so that all of them can see the very object of wrath that has come upon them, the very object that I've used to bring death into the camp because of their unbelief. And anybody who looks up to this snake, believing that I can rescue them from them, will be saved. 
And that's exactly what happens. And so Jesus is wanting Nicodemus to not miss this comparison. He's saying you may not have control over God's determining will in the new birth, but what you can do and what you should do is to look up to the Son of Man much like the Israelites looked up to the snake in the wilderness. And so we in the 21st century live on this side of the cross with the entirety of the scriptures at our disposal, but the correlation still is very vividly similar. Our sin and our unbelief of who Jesus is is deserving of death. And not just a physical death by poisonous snakes, that's actually quite tame compared to the kind of death that's promised to us in the scriptures. Ours is one that is eternal and that extends past the grave. But God has once again given a remedy, and it's his son, Jesus Christ, the very man caught up in this conversation with Nicodemus. And very soon, he's, very soon after this conversation, Jesus is going to be lifted up on a cross. He's going to be lifted up on a tree. He's going to be crucified. And the penalty that was owed for our sins will be filled up in his broken and bloody body hanging on a tree, openly exposed for all sinners to see the type of death that should have been theirs. But the promise, once again, still remains that whoever looks up to him with eyes of faith, that includes us in believing what his life, his death, and his resurrection have accomplished, will be saved will be healed. God will rescue them, much like he did the Israelites in the desert. And they'll eventually enjoy eternal life, safe passage into the promised land, that being heaven. And so as I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, there's a surface-level way of believing in Jesus that he does not acknowledge, that he does not entrust himself to. John says it's not genuine. But Jesus reveals to us here that there is a way of believing him that he does acknowledge, that he does entrust himself to those who do as children of God with access into the kingdom of God. And so where this Holy Spirit brings this new birth, this kind of belief will always follow. You will not have one without the other, and they'll always be anchored around the person of Jesus Christ. And so Emmaus and any other believers here today, we're going to be taking communion here in a few moments. And I, I invite any, any, of you, any of you who are, are believers to come down and to take and to enjoy this meal. Let it be spiritual nourishment to your soul. Furthermore, as we take this meal, would you remember the bread? Remember the Lord's body as, we, as, we, as you eat the bread and remember his blood that is shed for sinners as you take the juice. But don't just remember, would you also celebrate and rejoice? Look up at, at some point during this meal. Look up at your brothers and sisters that come down here. We have probably 100 different miracles that have happened here today, supernatural miracles. The Lord has granted new life, birth, to so many of us here. He has been generous to us. So look up and rejoice and marvel at what your God has done. Because we were cold we were hard. We were resistant. Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God has made us alive in Christ. God has done that. Look at what he has done. We were singing that song a couple weeks ago. You all know it. The, Look what God has done. He's redeemed us by his blood. Sinners lost and dead in sin. He came for us, right? Look what your God has done. Marvel at him. He has, he's been good to us. This new life, birth, is a miracle. So, so be grateful and joyful during this communion meal. And if you're here today and you have yet to believe and trust in Christ for eternal life, 
We ask that, actually ask that you would stay in your seat. Your presence here today is very impactful to us, and we hope to see you again, but by taking this meal, you'd just be entering into a, a ritualistic practice that would have very little meaning to it. But instead, like Jesus commanded Nicodemus, we plead with you today, look up to the Son of Man. Look up to Jesus. Believe in his life, his death, and his resurrection, and you'll find eternal life. You'll find sweet communion with the Lord. So take Christ today instead of this meal, if that's you. Thank you, Emmaus, for this time to share in John chapter 3. I hope it's been as convicting and encouraging to your heart as it has been mine. It's a real privilege to be a covenant member here alongside you. So thank you so much. And um, I invite you now to come down and to just enjoy in this communion meal. You can come down and take it this time. The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com.